0: Our series continues tonight in the uh, life of Joseph and from the book of Genesis, chapter 44. And as usual, we use a worksheet. If somebody needs one of these, I'd like for you to lift your hand to get one. The 44th chapter of Genesis. By now, I think two things, we've been in this study so long, this is probably the ninth or tenth sermon on this. Two things are happening. One is that your Bible just automatically opens to the uh, latter part of the book of Genesis, it's kind of bent <laughs> to open there. And the second thing is probably happening is that you're beginning to wonder what more can be said of one man. I mean, this subject has been worn to the threads. I know what some of you are saying. But there are certain lives that are like deep wells. They just never seem to want run dry. Now, why is it that the Spirit of God hovers over the life of Joseph for this great length of time? Um, It's more said of him than in, in the book of Genesis than of Adam or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Why is it that the Holy Spirit just hovers over Joseph's life? And what is there about him that makes him so great that the Lord says, just tarry here for a while. Now let's take a long look at this man's life. For he did no miracles, he walked on no water. He was not mysterious or exceedingly bright. What was the secret of his greatness? It was in his attitude. I've come to you tonight to talk to you about attitudes. When Jesus got His disciples together, one of the first things He did was to sit them down on the mount and teach them about attitudes. And He used the Sermon on the Mount for that teaching. For when one's attitude is right, then God can use that man in just about any way that God chooses to do it. Now I want you to mark this down as a as a truth an axiom the final proof of greatness the final proof of greatness lies in one's ability to endure contemptuous treatment without resentment the final test of greatness lies in your ability to endure contemptuous treatment without resentment Now, why is chapter 44 in the Bible? Martin Luther wanted to know that. He asked that question, as a matter of fact. He said this chapter is so mundane and boring that he didn't even understand how the Holy Spirit uh, could uh, inspire it to be placed in the Bible. How is chapter 44 there? And what is 44 about? Well, what Joseph was trying to find in his brothers, what he was trying to see... What Joseph wants to see in his brothers is the attitude that God had developed in him. His great desire was to see developed in his brothers the same attitude that God had developed in him. And he was willing to wait for years in his life for God to do his work and develop the attitude in in his brothers. That God had already developed in his life. Now, if you'll begin reading with me in chapter 44 of that background, we're going to take a look at what it says in chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph had told him. And as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks? Is this not his cup? And you've stolen it? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which He indeed uses for divinations? You have done wrong in doing this. So He overtook them and spoke these words to them, and they said to Him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks We have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. If you find that cup in any of our sacks, let the man die in whose sack you find it, and we'll be your slaves for the rest of our life. They were just certain that that cup Silver cup, that cup was not going to be found there. So he said, Now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried each man, lowered his sack to the ground, each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in the sack of Benjamin, in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I indeed practiced divination? So Judah said, now, now here it is, here is the first test. It's the vertical test. So Judah said, what can we say? What can I say? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. The first test was passed. It's the vertical test. They had come to the position and the attitude and the place in life where they were willing to admit before men and to God that they had sinned against Him. Now what is this, this iniquity of, their ser- of, of your servants that He's talking about? He's talking about this selling their brother into captivity. And for all of these years they had lived with a realization that they had sinned against God. The first test then is passed, For in His presence they confess their sin to God. The vertical test is passed. Let it be said tonight, something that we all already know, and that is this, that no iniquity is ever going to be passed over by God. No iniquity is ever going to be passed over. God will deal with it and continue to deal with it until we're willing to admit it to God. And as soon as that sin is confessed to him, that sin is forgiven. The vertical test is passed. But what about the horizontal test? Now it's important tonight that a man's attitude begin at this point. I know that I've sinned against God. I know that I'm a sinner, that I'm I'm guilty of sin. My attitude is that I have sinned against God and I've dealt with that sin vertically. But what about the horizontal test? Look at verse fifteen or verse seventeen. But he said, Be it far from me to do this, the man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah approached him and said, O my lord, may your servants please speak a word in my Lord's ear. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. You have the same authority as Pharaoh has. Now, what Joseph is trying to deal with here is the the horizontal test. He knows that they are willing to agree with God that they have sinned, but what is he going to do about his brother? Is he going to go to bat for his brother? And what about his father? Has the attitude that reaches out horizontally been dealt with adequately? And so he says, we're going to let you go, and you go on to your father, and, uh, and we'll let you go, but, but Benjamin is going to be sacrificed for what has happened. Now, what does Judah do? If you read the rest of this, Leupold calls this, the most impressive speech that has ever been uttered, that has ever found in the Bible. I won't take time to read this speech that Judah makes, but this is what he does. He stands up before Joseph and he pleads for his brother and he pleads for his father. He says, "Don't, don't do this. Let me stay here for Benjamin's sake. But you send, you let Benjamin go back to his father, because." Our father would go to the grave in deep grief without Benjamin. And so he goes to bat for his father and he goes to bat for his brother. The horizontal test has been passed. Now the vertical test is, what is my relationship to God and how do I approach Him for my sin? The horizontal test is, What what is my relationship to the people around me, to my brother, to the father of my childhood? Now 20 years ago, 20 years before this, Judah would have never made a speech like this because he couldn't care less about his brother and about his father. So what has happened in this 20-year period of time? What What is going on here? These men have experienced the transformation of the grace of God in their life. Now, when God transforms one's attitude, two things result. He has a different attitude toward God, and He has a different attitude toward the people around Him. One of the biggest mistakes that I make in life, and perhaps you, is to interpret the things that are happening to me by my understanding of what is happening to me. Sometimes, when I look out at the circumstances of my life, my interpretation is that, you know, there's something terrible, something terrible I've done, God's either punishing me or I'm getting a bum rap in life. It just might be that the circumstances in which you and I find ourselves are for this purpose. God is just trying to develop in us a relationship with Him and with those around us that He can honor and bless. And that's exactly what, was, what had happened in the lives of these men. Now, when you, in, when you study the life of Joseph, from the very beginning he had this marvelous attitude, this Tremendous disposition, no resentment, no desire for retaliation. But it took years for God to develop that same attitude in the life of His brothers. You know what God wants to do with you and me? He wants to develop in us a kind of a humility that looks to God in faith and in submission and surrender and looks to those around us in compassion and mercy. Now, when this happened, Joseph was ready to reveal himself. Now, if you look at chapter 45, we're going to see that. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by, and he cried, Have everyone, everyone go out from me. Have the Egyptians leave. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. They were sent to their quarters, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the house of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers two words, Hane Yosef. He spoke to them in the Hebrew tongue, and he said, I am Joseph. Now there had been 23 years transpired, And all of a sudden, these boys are there with their brother they'd sold into slavery, and he announces, I am Joseph, I'm your brother. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. The Hebrew word is they trembled, they were terrified. The the words literally blew them away. They couldn't. They couldn't stand the the, the, uh, the terror of that sound. I am I am Joseph. And he said, "Well, come closer." And as they came closer, he said, "I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt." He told them a story that had never been told. You think they had ever said that to anyone? No. He's the only one outside of those brothers that knew. What had happened? I am the brother you sold into Egypt. And when he said that, they were absolutely certain he was their brother. And now do not be grieved or angry within yourselves. It means do not get angry when you view the situation. Angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you, the second time He says it, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. God sent me here. God made this to happen. God has brought all of this into my life. This very day, you talk about a divine perspective. Is there anything in your life tonight that you have not been able to put your finger on and say God has caused this, has brought this into my life for some purpose that is beyond this day? God did this, He said. I don't want you to be dismayed or terrified. Or even angry with yourself because God has caused this to happen. This is from the Lord. Now, I'm not sure which comes first the chicken or the egg. But in in light of this, I'm not sure which comes first the attitude that is willing to say, whatever this is in my life that I don't understand, I believe it's from God. Or whether These things that keep on coming into our life causes the attitude to be that or not. But the the, the divine purpose, the desire that God has for each one of us is to bring us to the place where we can see everything in life as working to God's good and our advantage. There's nothing ever going to happen to you that God has not at least allowed. Remember, everything that comes into your life and mine has come from the, at least has passed through the beneficent hand of God. He's not going to allow anything into your life that will not work for the best. What a perspective Joseph had on it all. And then he says in verse 10, And you shall live in the land of Goshen... And you shall come near me, be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Now when somebody's done you wrong, what do you want? You want distance from them, don't you? That's why you walk across the street when you see them. You'd like to keep an arm's length at least between, some, between that person and that has done you wrong or and you have a problem with. You want distance, don't you? He said, I want you to come and live near me. I want you to be here with me, you and your children. Now, J.W. Jowett says that a sermon is really not a sermon if you can't say it in one sentence. I thought about that a little bit and, 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 and I came to this conclusion. If you can say it in one sentence, why say two, you know, and I... Uh, you wouldn't want to get out that early, I know. Just, you know, 8 o'clock or 12 on Sunday morning is fine. But if you want to put this in one sentence, this is the one sentence. Greatness is revealed not in the vast miraculous actions but in the daily positive attitude of the believer's life. Greatness is revealed not in the vast miraculous actions but in the daily positive attitude that one has toward life. Now Thomas Jefferson was right, I think, when he said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift, what he meant was that when you get the attitude right, when the core of your being, when the center of your being is right, then you're ready to move out in action in the right kind of action and activity. Now see three applications from this brief story. Number one, when I'm able to see God's plan in my location, my attitude is on the way up when I'm able to see God's plan in my location that God has sent me here then my attitude is on the way up read the New Testament sometime and you'll find that passage of Scripture that says that that the persecution came against the church and the church was scattered abroad It's the word of sowing seeds it suggests that you're not here by accident, that God has placed you right where you are for a purpose. Now you may be in a home where your parents are about the worst kinds of parents there are. You are there for a reason. You may have a job that you're miserable in and can't stand, wish you could get out of, just no way to get away from it. You are there for a reason. You may live in a neighborhood. You may have a neighborhood, a neighbor, that is absolutely impossible to get along with. God has placed you there for a reason. If you can see God's hand in your place, God's purpose in your place to say that God sent me to this situation, then your attitude is on the way up. Second, if you can see God's hand at work in your situation then your attitude is on the way up. This is from God. I'm going to believe that what happens to me tomorrow is a direct gift from God's hand to me. And it's so much easier to praise the Lord in everything if you believe that 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 everything comes from God. Third, when I'm able to accept both my location, and the situation in which I find myself, even when there is evil in the process, then my attitude has arrived. When I'm able to see both the situation and, uh, and, and the location as from the Lord, even though at the time these things are happening, it's, it, there, there are evil things happening to me, then my attitude has arrived. And if there's anybody here tonight that is in this category, you are a trophy of what God's grace is all about. Now, our Savior was crucified and He left this earth. But He was a perfect example of the, of the grace of God embodied. He was a perfect example of what it means to to demonstrate the grace of God. And if you can live with this kind of attitude, you will be that trophy of God's grace, an example of our Lord. A boy grew up in England. His name was John. His parents left him, deserted him when he was a young lad. He became a street urchin. He lied about his age and joined the British Navy. Became a navigator, skilled. But he went AWOL from the British Navy and escaped to the coast of Africa. And there he lived in a a house where there was a harem. And this harem was uh, maintained by a Negro woman. She was cruel to John. She'd bring his food in occasionally and throw it on the floor, make him eat it like a dog. She would tie him to the bed and beat him. She was merciless in her treatment. He escaped that home and and fled to the coast of Africa, and out on the shore he built a fire and and caught the attention of a sailing vessel going by, and they brought him on board. Because he was a navigator, he stayed on board and, and, and got a job on that ship, but he was a profligate. he was a radical... A prodigal. He was a drunkard, and one day he gave the whole crew rum and got them all drunk. The captain came and beat him, threw him in the hull, the hole of the ship, took him out of the hole, beat him again, cast him overboard, then harpooned him and brought him back on board. Left a scar in his side that you could not cover with your hand. He was thrown again down into the hole of the ship. And there he came to this conclusion. Anything is better than this. And he remembered his childhood, in his childhood, going to church and hearing about God. And he faithed his self to Christ. He believed in God and trusted Jesus. He became a poet. His poems, a place to song. One of those songs is one we sing our Baptist theme song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton. But he wrote a song that we used to sing, but it became kind of a, you know, um, out of place in a church, uh, perhaps because uh, of its title. How tedious and tasteless the hours. Sometimes that you know, people want to sing that while they sit in a, in a church. But I want you to listen to the first stanza of that song. How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see sweet prospects, sweet birds and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to look gay. But when I am happy in Him, December's as pleasant as May. You know what He's saying in that stanza? He's saying if your heart is right, if your attitude is right, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing or what the circumstance. December is as pleasant as May. It's all a matter of the attitude. Now, what's your attitude like tonight? Have you settled the issue with God and with those around you? Has there been such a transformation in your life that horizontally you've made it right with everyone as, as far as it's possible with you to make it right And have you made it right with God? And because of getting everything straight between you and God vertically and you and others horizontally, you're able to have an attitude that accepts life with joy and victory and triumph. If not, you're of all men most miserable. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for this moment of invitation. Because it's an invitation, Lord, concerning attitude. When the heart is right, the feet are swift. When we get the attitude straightened out, then what we do and how we face life and what we experience and how we treat others. So, is so different, changed. Lord, help us to evaluate and investigate our attitude. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray. Now, our, inv- our invitations tonight are like this. I don't know if there's anybody here in this service that's never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. You've not gotten, you've not passed the first test. God still holds you accountable for your iniquity, for your sin, the sin of rejecting His Son. First test tonight is for you to come and by faith claim the gift of eternal life, of salvation that God has made available through Jesus, His Son. The second second invitation has to do with our relationship to others. Is the influence of your life, does it count for God? Does it build the church? Is it destructive? Perhaps you you need to come tonight or would like to come and place your life in the church. These are the invitations that we never tire of offering extending. We'll do it right now as we stand to sing. Come.